together. And this is why we are doing this once a month again. We have done it in the past, but just feel like the time in which we're living, we've got to just call upon the name of the Lord. He's our only hope. We're not going to get saved by some politician. Uh, we might get destroyed by some politician, but we won't, surely won't be saved by them. So we need to pray for them. Pray for the peace that results from having godly leadership. Among others, the, the people, there's so many people with sickness, physical maladies, there's spiritual oppression, people need deliverance. I mean, we need God. We're living in this t oppressive time. So what better way than to seek the face of the Lord through worship? You remember Elijah, or Elisha was having a rough time. Uh, he was kind of bent out of shape with the, the king of Israel, and he didn't want to be around him, and, and they came to him for the word of the Lord, and he was so upset that he couldn't hear the Lord. And he said, call for a musician. And so they came, and they took time to, to praise the Lord. And then the word of the Lord came. So this is so important that prayer and praise are a way of God speaking to us in our worship time. It's so critical. If you've never experienced that, now's a good time to try it out tonight. So just want to encourage you to do that. Here in Numbers 28, we have uh, the sort of the rehearsal of actually Leviticus 23. And in Leviticus 23, there's a, uh, we go through the, the offerings <clears throat> and the feast times of Israel. And so we kind of get that here in, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, chapter 28 and chapter 29. And it begins uh, with the daily offerings. Moses is speaking to this second generation. All he's the last, uh, as well as um, uh, Joshua and Caleb. There's, so there's three people of that group that came out of Egypt. Everybody else has died. Aaron's gone. Miriam's gone. All the leaders of the houses, they're gone. The next generation is here. Moses is going to die after this. Only Joshua and Caleb are going to enter in. So he's speaking to this generation, remind them of what they've been taught, and actually what they were taught as children. You know, and so you know, it sort of relates to us. Then that some of you have been in church all your life. You don't know anything else but going to church. Traditionally, I must be a Christian because I grew up in church, or my granddad was a church, a pastor. So that makes me one of God's grandchildren. You know, no, <laughs> doesn't matter. You, you, everyone comes personally, individually before God. He has no grandchildren, right? He only has children. And so Moses is here to re-educate, re remind them of what they've been given. And some of these things, as we'll see <clears throat> this week and next week, uh, <clears throat> in regards to the feast, uh, were things that they couldn't really observe while they were in the time of wilderness. Remember, they were not supposed to originally be in the wilderness for 40 years. Should only have lasted, it was a two-week journey with a, a three-month, uh, you know, pastor's leadership conference at Mount Sinai, <laughs> just sitting at the feet of God and learning his rules and regulations and how he was to be approached in the sacred space, in the holy place. And then they were to go take the land. Didn't work out that way. So we see why would God tell them to do it this way if they're not in the land? Well, they were supposed to be there, but 
It didn't happen. But the second generation, they're going to be in the land, and they need to observe these things. So that kind of gives you an overall picture of <clears throat> 28 and 29 here. So let's read the first eight verses, and we'll talk about, first off, the daily offerings. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the, the children of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food for my offerings, made by fire as a sweet aroma to me. You shall be careful to offer to me at their appointed time. And you shall say to them, This is the offering made by fire which you shall offer to the Lord. Two male lambs in their first year, without blemish, day by day, as a regular burnt offering. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other you shall offer in the evening. And one-tenth of the ephah of the fine flour is a grain offering mixed with one-fourth a hin of pressed oil. It is a regular burnt offering which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. And its drink offering you shall be one-fourth of hin of, for each lamb in the holy place. You shall pour out the drink to the Lord as an offering. And the other lamb shall offer it evening and as the morning grain offering and its drink offering, you shall offer it as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. This is an amazing thing that God put together. I mean, no man thought these things up. But the, the point here uh, in the, uh, the exhortation here uh, to this second generation about to go into the promised land was that they be careful. Be careful to to observe the appointed time. And this is an important thing in our lives. There's an appointed time for all things. In fact, Job 7.1 tells us, there, there's, is there not an appointed time for man upon the earth? You know, some of us would, uh, are perplexed by this. Why was I born at this time? You know, why couldn't I have been one of the disciples of Jesus, you know? Some of you who really love the Lord. It's like, man, you, you know, why couldn't I have lived during that time? Well, maybe not a disciple, but gosh, I sure would have been like to have been Jewish and watched his ministry take place. Well, that wasn't to be. You were, each and every one of us were born at an appointed time for an appointed purpose. And that's an amazing concept when you think about it. Now, in this context, the appointed time were for the offerings, the feast, and the idea behind those things was meeting with me. You can look at these rituals, these sacrifices, these feasts, and it's all, you know, it's just what we do. But what, what's the intent? What's the big deal? The big deal is you are having communion. You're having fellowship with Yahweh. The creator who, who made you wants to have an intimate personal relationship with you. And this is what's behind the meanings. And so, again, focusing on the appointed time, the Jewish calendar, as we know, is a lunar calendar. And so the feasts were tied to the twilights, to the new moons and the seasons and all. You know, we see this right out of the gate in Genesis um, chapter 1, verse 14. It says, uh, God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons, for days, for years. And let them be for light in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. 
And then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule by the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And he made the stars also. Kind of an understatement there. He let them be for signs and seasons, for days and years. Now, I find in our culture, there's not many stargazers. There's not many of us, and I'm in the crowd that I probably need, I need to repent of this. And I live out in the country so I can do this a little easier maybe. Uh, that is going out at night and just looking up at the stars. It'll, it, 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 is, it does something to your soul. But we uh, find ourselves, uh, generally speaking, if, looking down and being preoccupied with our work. When's the last time you observed the skies other than when it's about to storm? <laughs> When have you, when, when's the last time you were gazing at the galaxies and the stars at night with just your naked eye? It's a marvel. It's an amazing thing. It's a humbling thing. Kind of puts you in your place, doesn't it? Boy, oh boy. <laughs> I've only been around a few years, and look how many years that they have been around, how God holds them there. The appointed times throughout Scripture is a really, it's kind of a fascinating thing when you think about it. And God works on the basis of time, as we're all aware but Passover was for an appointed time. Uh, uh, Daniel uh, 11.29 is a time for war when God allotted the nations would come against the Babylonian Empire. Uh, judgment, the judgment of God is in an appointed time. You think the people that are presently running this country and have been influencing things in our government are going to escape the judgment of God? Don't bet on it. Childbirth. <laughs> uh, those great with child, right? We have in our midst. <laughs> At an appointed time. Isaac is the reference here. Genesis 18. God has an appointed time for each person to be born. Second Kings 4.17 would also verify that. How about visions? Yes, they'll be fulfilled in their time. Habakkuk 2, 3. End time events are for an appointed time. And even the law, the law of Moses that we're going through here and have gone through was for an appointed time. It's now obsolete. It's past. It's done. It's over. But it was for an appointed time. And then we also know that the end of the age, the Antichrist, appearing just before the return of the real Messiah, he will come at his appointed time, not one day sooner and not one day later, and then he will be destroyed in his time. It's an appointed time. And as Job said, is there not an appointed time to man upon the earth? And that's a rhetorical question. Yes. You have a time. I have a time. What are you doing with your time? That's so important. He's got a schedule for your life events. He's got in that schedule, a time for you to accomplish your purpose. How are you imaging God? Are you on schedule with your appointments? You know, when you start thinking about how we spend our personal time, it's really quite sobering, actually. Will I finish my course? Have I left anything undone? Do I have enough time to finish what I know God has called me to do? Now, if you take time and think through these things, they're very sobering. And yet, we can. 
even if we've fallen and making mis- made mistakes and delayed and, you know, copped out, however you want to phrase it, there's still enough time. Call upon his name. Ask him for his help. He'll get you back on schedule. He'll get you back on track. So again, the exhortation here is for this second generation to be careful that they execute these appointed times that they remain on schedule. These offerings of animals, the grains and the goods and all dedicated to God were for the way of giving thanks and uh, dealing with their sin that needed to be forgiven and covered. And as we've read here, it says the offerings made by fire were a sweet smelling aroma to the Lord. You know, it was just one big massive cookout. (laughs) Could you imagine all this beef and all this lamb, mutton, I guess? (laughs) It just would, you know, doesn't it, isn't it smell good when you're grilling? You know, just, yeah, it's, but I don't know that that's all that's involved in that. It's not like the Lord is going, oh man, that's a little toasty. No, I don't think he measures it that way. The idea is pleasing, actually, uh, literally uh, tranquilizing. It's something uh, that creates a beautiful peace between the offerer, the worshiper, and himself. He loves peace. He loves unity. And so when those offerings and those sacrifices are brought to the Lord, there's a tranquil transaction, so to speak, that takes place. God is like, yes, my son, my daughter, we're we're united in love. That's that's what's involved in this. And of course, we know that these offerings uh, and sacrifices were made sometimes to commemorate events. You know, Noah did one at the end of the flood. Shoot, glad to get off that boat. You know, he, he whoa, he was really full of thanksgiving. You know, I don't think they had stuff to handle seasickness back then. But, you know, he's probably just glad after a year of being on that boat that probably got, hey, let's, let's build an altar. Let's, let's thank God we're on that ship, you know. Anyway, it's just a little... Use your imagination. I do. Anyway, um, on the other hand, when it comes to this appointed time in the order of worship, if things were out of order and they were not done at the right time, this was not good. God is the God of order. He loves order. He doesn't like chaos. Nothing in God's universe is out of order. The only thing that's out of order is this the problem children on the planet earth and that's why the sacrifices and the offerings were needed but elsewhere in his world outside of the fall things are in perfect harmony and again just go outside and look up at the stars do you see chaos up there it's been like that ever since you've been around and before that right again now Obviously, there's a lot of typology. We've talked about this in time past. When you look through these offerings, you look through these sacrifices and the feast, tremendous amount of typology and symbolism. And I don't imagine that all the Israelites got it. They just, okay, this is what we're supposed to do. This is what it is, and let's just do it because, you know, otherwise when his wrath breaks out, nobody's safe. So let's just 
be obedient, right? And sometimes people just don't go beyond that safety factor. They miss, they miss what's the intent behind it. And I think it's true for those of us in, as Christians. As, as believers, we don't fully grasp all that we have in Christ. Because everything that is in the Old Testament by way of sacrifice is all completed and fulfilled in the person of Christ. And I think that's important. Now, just like the Israelites were to learn what they were doing, and the priest taught them. This is what's going on. When you lay your hands on the bull or on the lamb, you're transferring your sin. You're the one that should be dying, but God's merciful, and he's letting the animal take your place. Substitutionary sacrifice. And then same thing with Christ. It's all wrapped up in the person of Christ. You know, as a pastor teacher, that's our role, to explain the benefits the fulfillment, the symbolism that was fulfilled in Christ that is now applicable to us and for us to take advantage of it. Do you realize you have the privilege of praying to God? You have the right and the privilege to enter into the holy place, which was absolutely forbidden. No one could enter that sacred space of the holy place or the holy of holies except the priest. And the high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year, only after he had sufficiently covered his own sin through sacrifice. And now the invitation to you and to me as believers is we come boldly to the throne of grace to into the Holy of Holies. Christ made it possible. And this daily offering uh, is reminiscent of our daily commitment to walk with God in his presence, to be filled with the Holy Spirit and walk with him and commune with him in our hearts. God never intended us to live our lives apart from him. We're not to be independent from him. We seek our autonomy. That's what our fallen nature uh, does to us. It wants us to isolate and to live ourselves independent of God's rule. And that is uh, not to happen to a believer. And this whole thing of daily offerings is a picture of you and I just daily Walking with Christ, taking in the manna of his word, allowing it to, to minister his grace and give us the spiritual nourishment, as it were, what we, that we need uh, each day. And so morning and night, these offerings were made. And that's probably a good pattern. You see that with David. Uh, you see that with Daniel. They prayed in the morning. And then they had their evening prayers. And this is, again, a picture of what was going on with this daily offering. Uh, I believe David also prayed at noon. And, and we are too. We got that 1159 thing going on. Just a reminder there. <laughs> the thing that's easy, I think, at least for me, to overlook in this offering of cattle and sheep and grain is how much it costs them. I mean, an oxen, a bull, I mean, this is their livelihood. These are expensive offerings. And then you read, you know, Solomon offering thousands of them. Like, man, oh man, how many sheep and how many oxen must have been produced and were being produced to sustain the Levitical order here? It's amazing. And, um, and I don't know that we... Um, really appreciate uh, what it took to, to worship the Lord in that manner. Uh, the, even the heathen did that. It's just kind of an ancient Old Testament, you know, Middle East 
Mesopotamian thing and probably other parts of the world where animals were sacrificed to the gods. The heathen did it. There was something about in, in, inside man to worship and there's a religious aspect to our spiritual nature and we would desire to worship. We're drawn to worship and uh, I don't think we fully can appreciate that in our modern culture here. I mean, I think about how many of us in this room are farmers? How many of us even grew up on a farm? And do we even think about uh, the guys that produce our meats and our grains? Uh, we just do not in our present day relate very well to the agrarian culture uh, as it was back then. I mean, there's very few families that are in the farming business these days. And very few uh, grow uh, their own, people grow their own food. Uh, small, well, there's a small minority, I suppose, that do. And then there's even a smaller minority that hunt for their food. But, you know, we have, uh, it's all been relegated to uh, like five or six corporations now. And they control the farming industry. It's kind of, kind of way different. So it's, it, you know, as far as offering these things and, and realizing how much they cost, it's, we just can't relate. But what we can relate to is how we give our offerings to the Lord. And, and this, as offering the cattle and the sheep with their livelihood, we are employed by employers or if we're self-employed, and we receive compensation for that work. And then we give to the church to support the ministry. And, and in reality, we're not giving to the church. We're, in our hearts, we're giving to the Lord. We're presenting it to the Lord. That's our offering. And that's of our livelihood. And... It's expensive to us. Uh, it's a costly thing. As it was costly for them to give, it's costly for us to give. Your offering should uh, cost you some, something. There should be a little sting. It's called a sacrifice. Sacrifices hurt a little bit, right? That's uh, part of the, you know, the theological understanding um, about the gifts that we give to God. Uh, it requires some sense of loss, on the part of the giver. It's just, that's just the way it is, you know. Uh, but what, what is being said, and this is the point that must be understood and driven home here. Uh, the worshiper is expressing his belief that the presence of God, the life giver of all things, is of higher value than any material wealth I could ever possess. That's why I give to the Lord. Not, not because I'm trying to curry his favor, for goodness sake. I could never give enough for that to happen. But what I am saying when I give is that the money that I've earned, my livelihood, is of less value than you, Lord. You're more valuable than anything else in my life. And that's what it, we're talking about when we give to the Lord. We have a good example in David's heart. David, such an incredibly gifted man. Oh my goodness, I look through the Psalms and I think this guy was a musician, a prophet, a warrior, a king. An incredible love for God and the way that he could express his emotions uh, to many of us has been a real blessing over our lives, especially if we're really down in the dumps and we're going through something, depression or other discouragements. But uh, at the end of Second Samuel, near the end of his reign, um, there was a plague. He, he made a couple mistakes and the Lord was judging the nation because of his pride. And uh, he goes to uh, the threshing floor of um, Aranya 
Uh, it's kind of a form of Onan. And we read in 2 Samuel 24, 22, that Arania said to David, let my Lord the King take the offer, uh, take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are the oxen for burnt sacrifice and the threshing instruments and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All these, O King Orania, has given to you, the king. And Orania said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Orania, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which that which costs me nothing. And so David bought the threshing for and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. And so the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. And so there's an illustration of what we're talking about. It should cost us something, you know, and that's cause for us to examine our hearts in our giving back to the Lord. Now, as we look at these burnt offerings in particular, when the burnt offering, which is a little bit different, like the peace offerings and the thanksgiving offerings, a part of that went to the priest and also to the family. And we'll talk a little bit about family worship here in a minute. But um, uh, when when it came to the burnt offering, everything stayed on the altar. It was, it, it was uh, bled out. The blood was uh, put upon the altar around about. And it cut in pieces and washed, but it was completely consumed. And that was a blessing to God. Because what, of not that the animal was slaughtered in such a way, but that what it implied in the symbols behind it, there's nothing left. This is talking about complete dedication, complete and total surrender to God. And that's, and the person who offered that realized uh, that he was not holding anything back. Uh, he he was in, he it inferred to him that he had total commitment and total dedication to the Lord. Now, when we think about Jesus, it was a type of burnt offering, right? What did he cry out? Right, his some of his final words. He cried out, "It is finished." And he was saying a whole lot when he said it was finished, right? There's no need for no more animal sacrifices. No more grain. None of that anymore. I've completed and fulfilled everything. My offering was a complete total, a complete dedication to the Father. And we know that his offering was affirmed because what happened? Anybody remember what happened when Jesus gave up the Spirit? Yes, the veil was torn from top to bottom. The way into the holy place, as I talked to about earlier, has now been open to you, to the believer, to those who come, who apply the finished work of Christ to their life. So, that's why we refer to these daily offerings, really, uh, and as Jewish people refer to this, uh, the daily offerings anyway, and the Christian commentaries uh, will affirm this, that... Uh, this daily sacrifice is a reference to the Lamb of God, to Jesus, who takes away the sins of the world. And as I said, the, the veil was torn. And if you remember um, about 
40 years later, uh, the temple was destroyed. Rome came in, the Roman soldiers destroyed the temple. And there, as Hosea said, they would be many days without a sacrifice. It's been almost 2,000 years since the Jews have had a sacrifice. And that's because they don't need one anymore. It's already been provided. The idea of prayer in the morning, the idea of prayer in the evening, the whole idea picked up by the New Testament writers, Paul in particular. I beg you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is your reasonable thing to do. It's your reasonable service. It's the intelligent thing to do. Having known this and understood this, the right thing to do is give yourself completely over to God's purpose. You only have a short time here. You have an appointed time. You don't have time to mess around with this. We're called to redeem the time. The hour is late. We're beyond 1159. We're seconds away. And our lives might even be closer than that. But notice how the Lord says, my offerings, my food, for my offerings. You think God's hungry? You think God's starving? <laughs> no, it's not about that at all, is it? It's, David wrote in Psalm 50, and this is under the inspiration of the Spirit, Yahweh saying, I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which you are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house nor goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, and I know all the birds on, of the mountains and all the wild beasts of the field, they're mine. If I were hungry, would I, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine in its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God thanksgiving. Pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. You shall glorify me. So the sacrifices, the things that are yielded and given over to God are not for his benefit. They are for our benefit. They were for the nation's benefit to unite them together in their worship of God. This is the prescribed way in which we were to worship him. We worship God through sacrifice. And I'm glad, I'm sure you are too, that Jesus fulfilled all this. We, aren't, we don't have to be farmers. We don't have to be uh, people of the agrarian world at all. But let us really appreciate what has been given to us in the person of Christ and what he went through and humbled himself to provide this for us. I love that smell, though, that sweet-smelling aroma. I just like that whole concept, though, don't you? You know, you walk into the room, and someone's, you know, the kitchen and your wife or someone's cooking a great meal and it's, oh, yes, like Friday night, camp out, going to be great. You're, you're really going to like it. <laughs> we love good food. That's that smell, that, that aroma that we enjoy is how God feels in, in part in that tranquilness because of the beauty of peace. There's unity in heart. Isn't that just a wonderful thing? Now, verses 9 and 10, 
covered the Sabbath. We'll pick it up a little bit here. Uh, verses 9 and 10. On the Sabbath day, two lambs of the first year without blemish, two-tenths of an ephah of fine flowers, a grain offering mixed with oil. It's drink offering. This is the burnt offering every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offering and it's with its drink offering. So this offer, it's almost like the Sabbath itself was a feast day, was a special day, but it was celebrated once a week, obviously. The feasts were, were uh, once a year. Uh, and so, but there were, you know, special things involved with the Sabbath offering. It was done every week. It's kind of like going to church every week. It's your commitment. It's something special above and beyond your daily devotional life, as it were. Six days, the Bible says, work shall be done. And on the seventh day is the Sabbath, a solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is the Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. And so the Sabbath is a, really it's a summary of our relationship with, with God. Uh, God rested on the seventh day from his creation. He finished his work. And then he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. Just a special thing that was going on there. That's what God desires of us. Now, in our culture <clears throat> and in our age of grace, I think sometimes we take advantage of, well, we're under grace, we're not under law. And we are, that's true. And I think if your animal falls in the ditch, as the Bible says, you need to fetch him out. But I don't think it's wise to make it a practice to work seven days a week, week after week after week. It's just not wise. We are not built like that. God, do you think we know more and are more informed about ourselves than God? I think not. We need rest. We need, you know, what ends up happening is over a period of time, I've watched this and I've observed it in people's lives who don't really get it. They think they have to do what they have to do. And it's not true. It's a lie. But they don't believe that. If you will put God first, and I find this, actually, I find this on a daily, oh, I don't have time to pray this morning. I don't have time to really spend time with the Lord this morning. And I'll pay for it later in the day when I pull that stunt. Like, no, because I'm disheveled. I'm not as clear in my thinking. I haven't organized myself maybe as well as I could have if I would have taken the time. And it's the same thing with overworking. You, you, you wear down and then your efficiency level drops. And so you think you're actually saving time by you know, making up for it, by working the seven days a week. Well, actually, it puts you farther behind. God is able to make all grace abound to us. I think about when I, uh, where I'm from. I grew up on a farm. And the farmers that in the area that, that did this, they just did their basic what they needed to do uh, on Sunday. But they kept the Lord first. Those farmers prospered. And it's the one that seemed to be working like 60. Yeah. They weren't quite as prosperous. There's a story actually of these fellows that were um, I think it's out in, in um, North Dakota. They're a community of farmers and so they have to depend upon each other uh, for help. I mean they're, they're 
you know, you think they've got th hundreds of acres, thousands of acres in some cases, and they've got, you know, cattle everywhere and, and lots going on. They have to, you know, seven days a week they've got to make sure. And so there was a, a move of God in that area. And a pastor came and ministered uh, to that area and kind of brought them together in their local church and said, look, is there any way you guys could, instead of working on Sunday, just give them a little bit extra food on, you know, Saturday night and then Monday morning? And, you know, they just, well, we just never really thought about it that way. It's just the way we've always done it. And so they, they realized that they needed to come together as a community. And the, because they, one of the problems that they were having was there was no rain. And the rain wasn't coming. And they needed it to come for their crops and all. And so after uh, they came together, the pastor in the area had brought them together. And they began to pray. Uh, God answered their prayer. <clears throat> and they saw God working. And then from that, he encouraged them, look, give the Lord his day. Give the Lord his due. And I think that's the message to us today. Let, let's make sure that we're giving God his due daily and then weekly. I think that's what uh, uh, the exhortation for us this morning is in this area. You know, this time of, of uh, these monthly, monthly offerings here, we'll read this uh, 11 to 15 uh, here. At the beginning of the months... You shall present a burnt offering to the Lord. Two young bulls, one ram, seven lambs of their first year without blemish. Three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering, mixed with oil for each bull, two-tenths of ephah. I mean, this is really detailed, right? Verse 13, one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain for the offering of each lamb as a burnt offering of sweet-smelling aroma. An offering made by fire to the Lord. The drink offering shall be half a hen of wine for a bull, a third hen for a ram, a fourth hen for a lamb. This is the burnt offering for each month throughout the months of the year. And also one kid of the goats has a sin offering to the Lord. It shall be offered besides the regular burnt offerings. Very detailed in their coming before the Lord, this monthly offerings that was to be presented and so there's this little extra here, as you can see, uh, when you begin to compare uh, the different daily offerings, the Sabbath offerings, and now this monthly offering. And sometimes uh, God does call us to give a little extra effort, as it were, to seeking Him. You know, I would associate this essentially going to a conference. You know, Calvary chapels have a lot of pastors' conferences. We call them leadership conferences. We have musicians' conferences. We have uh, men's conferences. Uh, they're specialized for different groups and all. But the idea is you're going to spend a day or two alone with the Lord as you attend this conference. You're giving the Lord a little extra. You're making a little greater sacrifice because you feel like your spiritual growth and your relationship with God matters. It, actually, you're demonstrating that's more important than anything else in your life, as it should be. And so I think it's important to attend these conferences. I know I've been doing it for years, and I think, well, you know, same old, same old. You know, you got the speakers, you got the same format. But you know what? You think these offerings became a little redundant? Over and over, like, you know. It's all a matter of where your heart is. If you just look at it as this outward ritual, well, of course it's going to feel like But if you realize that it has a way of enriching my relationship with God, and your heart is in it, 
and you're seeking God, it is a whole different experience for the person who has it right. Peter put it this way, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. 1 Peter 3.15 Be ready to give in a defense. That You see what that does when you have God first and He is the priority and He is set apart in your heart to Him. You're ready. You're going to, you're going to be able to accomplish everything in the appointed time that God has allotted for you. I don't worry about people missing the will of God when they have this kind of attitude. I think it's actually virtually impossible to miss the will of God when you are seeking Him daily, coming before Him in prayer, day and night, weekly in church, seeking Him with the body of Christ, enjoying that special presence that happens when two or three are gathered in His presence. Those that go to conferences and spend the extra, make the extra effort to develop their spiritual life will be richly rewarded. And to the degree that I give myself to that is to the degree that I will experience spiritual satisfaction and intimacy with God. That's what it's about. That's what this whole thing is about. And, you know, God had to bring us to the book of Numbers to hear that, right? Isn't that crazy? Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. You know, you think about Jesus. You think... He had a lot on his plate. Think he was busy. I mean, how would you like to keep 12 guys under wraps? That would have been a ministry just by itself. Especially with Peter and Paul. And Peter and John and James and John. I mean, those guys were kind of like troublemakers. Did we bring fire down on these guys? I mean, you can tell these guys were, you know, he had to corral them in. But what do we see about Jesus regularly? Come away. They're, they're so busy, you don't have time to eat. Let's, we need to go to a deserted place, and we just need time alone. Maybe that's what God's saying to you this morning. You just need to get off the train for a little bit. Take a day and just spend it with the Lord. Allow Him to, His Spirit to minister to you. Open up your Bible. Open up your heart. And spend time with Him. You will never regret. I've never gone to a conference. I've never taken time away, a little hiatus, a few days away just to seek the Lord and been disappointed. Ever. Have you ever been disappointed in the presence of God? I mean, really. I'd be disappointed with yourself, but not Him. And so, very important concepts indeed. Next week, we're going to get into uh, the remainder of the chapter here and in the 29 as we go through the feast now I find this very exciting I love to talk about the feast because of the symbolism and how it's tied into the church I think there's some things going on there the, the seven feasts you know we got Passover the unleavened bread and then Pentecost and then there's this interval between May and September four months long hot dry period of time and then the, the remaining uh, feast at the end there we'll get into that and break that down so these um, feasts and we'll end with this are pictures of God's miraculous work with Israel and his purposes for them they were there in the Old Testament for an appointed time because they were his people, his nation and they were a miracle 
just like you're a miracle. You think about how big a miracle it is that you're sitting in this seat right now. You think of how big of a miracle it is that you're born again and you are, your name's been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That is miraculous. I spent this past week, had a couple reunions, friends up north, and a, a class reunion. And one of the shocking things is a number of people are actually walking with the Lord now. And virtually none of us were in high school, right? amazing and a miracle think about Israel their dad father Abraham and mother Sarah couldn't have children so they had a miracle birth as a nation miracle deliverance from Egypt out of the world miraculously preserved 40 years in the wilderness Miraculous protection from the surrounding nations that were seeking to destroy them. Do you see how that applies to you? Miraculously, you were born again. Do you ever stop and think how that happened to you? Now, some of you just grew up in church and it sort of migrated. Like, you know, I don't want to go to hell. <laughs> right? Just like, you. wait, heaven, hell. Let me think. Uh, hard choice, right? I mean, some of you, that's okay. I mean, at least you made the choice, right? For me... I don't even know how it happened sometimes. Like, it's like, I have something better for you. It's amazing. It is truly, to be born again is a miracle. If you're here this morning and you have no idea what I'm talking about, what do you mean born again? What I mean is, when we were born into this world, we we're born spiritually dead. We're separated by God. We don't understand spiritual things. We don't understand God. We don't get it. But when you're born again, your spirit, because we're basically spiritual beings, our soul and our spirit are immaterial. The only thing that's material about us is our body, and it's going to perish. It's the inner man that I'm talking about. And when you're born again, your spirit is made alive. That is how we worship God. We worship God in the spirit, through the spirit. So if your spirit is dead, you have no, you're separated from God. You can't understand or, or grasp spiritual things. But when you're born again, your spirit is made alive. Now you have contact with God. You have unity with God. There's love exchange in the spirit. And so this is what we mean by being born again. And you, it is there for the asking. It is based upon the forgiveness of sin. If I will confess my sins and ask him to forgive me, he will apply the blood of Christ and my spirit will became, become alive to him. To those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to them he gave the right, the authority, to become the sons of God. That's his promise. God's made up his mind about salvation for men. I'm willing that nobody perish. Whether you are saved or whether you are lost, it's on you. It is your choice. God's made it his choice, hasn't he? He's done everything he could. I loved you just much, said Jesus, when he stretched out his hand and took the nails. He did it all. It's finished. But how about you? It's on you. you got to choose the miraculous birth. And in that process of becoming, being God's child, he will deliver you out of the world. He will save you. He will keep you from deception. 
As you are loyal to him, he will be loyal to you. That's what it's about. Just loyal love between you and the Lord. He'll preserve you. He'll provide. Oh, what am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? <laughs> Do you think it was a, a real chore for God to provide 40 years for 2 million people in the wilderness? He fed them, clothed them, protected them, watered them. And you worried about paying your bills? You got to get a perspective on this. He will preserve us. He's promised to do that. And he'll protect us. And the idea here is war. He'll protect us from the enemy. See, when you are born again, <clears throat> and you've, <clears throat> you've commit yourself to Christ, you have put a target, or a target has been put on your head, you have now become an enemy to Satan. You were in his camp, you've withdrawn from his camp, and now he hates you because you love God. And do you think he's going to be passive about your decision to leave his camp? He's going to aggressively seek you. You're going to enter into spiritual warfare that you never knew existed before because you were part, you, he had you, and you were captive, and you weren't fighting. Now that you're gone, he's going to pursue you. We are under assault and attack daily. And I, I have heard so many people over the years saying, you know, I never had so many problems until I became a Christian. So that's part and parcel of the walk that we have. But we're overcomers. God knows our frame. He knows that we're but dust. He will not allow us to be tempted above what His grace will bound to us. His grace is sufficient for every trial. His love is sufficient. He's there for us. It's hard. It's not easy. But we're overcomers. That is our mantra. We just keep trudging on. We are pilgrims passing through. This is not our home. This is not our home. And so this is the mindset that we have. Your life is a miracle. God's going to work miraculously in your life and through your life so that you, while you breathe, can accomplish everything in your appointed time. Your appointed time.